BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Professional welder Shayna Ford used VR training developed by ForgeFX to hone her skills as a welder. The more time that you spend practicing it, that's what separates a good welder from a great welder. VR training can help students like Shayna repeatedly practice specific skills. Virtual reality definitely helps because the more muscle memory that you have, the smoother your weld is. Explore more stories like Shayna's at meta.com slash metaverse impact. It's Friday, December 18th, 2015, and you're listening to Inquiring Minds. I'm Indre Viscontis. And I'm Kishore Hari. Each week, we bring you a new in-depth exploration of the space where science, politics, and society collide. We endeavor to find out what's true, what's left to discover, and why it all matters. You can find us online at motherjones.com slash inquiringminds or inquiringshow.tumblr.com or on Twitter at inquiringshow or Facebook. And you can subscribe to the show on iTunes or any other podcasting app. This episode is sponsored by Loot Crate, the subscription box for the geek, gamer, and or nerd in all of us. For less than $20 a month, you get six to eight items of gamer and pop culture licensed gear, apparel, collectibles, unique one-of-a-kind items, and more. Make sure to head to lootcrate.com mines and enter code mines to save $3 on any new subscription. This year thus far, there have been crates featuring some exclusive items from Star Wars and Voltron, as well as some epic geek apparel from your favorite shows. A crate all about strategy games, a crate all about covert operations, and there is only more awesomeness to come. Remember, you only have until the 19th at 9 p.m. Pacific to subscribe and receive that month's crate. And when the cutoff happens, that's it. It's over. So go to lootcrate.com mines and enter code mines to save $3 on your new subscription today. I know what you're getting for Christmas, a Voltron crate. <laughs> awesome, I think. And this episode is sponsored by Zevia. Zevia is the zero calorie, naturally sweetened soda that's clearly different. It has no sugar and no calories, but is still somehow really delicious. Zevia is available in 15 different flavors like cream soda, black cherry, cola, ginger ale, or even tonic water. Always zero calories. Zevia makes amazing guilt-free cocktails. Is there such a thing as a guilt-free cocktail? Might be. Whiskey and ginger ale, gin and tonic, and so many more. Plus, Zevia is giving away thousands of free six-packs. To check it out, go to zevia.com slash podcast. That's Z-E-V-I-A dot com slash podcast. And this week's episode is sponsored by Harry's.com. Harry's is already disrupting the shaving industry offering a better shaving experience at better value than giants like Schick and Gillette. And Harry's will give first-time customers $5 off if you go to harrys.com and use coupon code inquiringminds. That's H-A-R-R-Y-S dot com, coupon code inquiringminds. A few weeks ago, we had on researcher Brad Bushman to talk about guns and, more importantly, the link to aggression. He cited some really interesting meta-analysis specifically linking playing video games as little as 20 minutes and showing resulting increased aggression in those participating in it. It was a really mind-blowing interview that you can 
you conducted. Thanks. You know, it, it obviously is very topical, especially this fall, especially this year, it seems, when when the number of mass shootings defined as shootings in which more than four people are hit seem to be happening every single day. And so I wanted to learn a little bit more about the relationship between guns and violence and whether that link has been established in science or not. But as you said, one of the topics that we covered, which was kind of a sidebar in the very first interview, is whether playing video games might increase aggression, which is in some ways a related but separate topic. And of course, a lot of our listeners took issue to some of the things that Dr. Bushman said. And a number of them suggested that we have on a really differing view from the the scientific field. Specifically, Chris Ferguson, who's an associate professor of psychology at Stetson University. His research focuses on media violence, specifically video game violence. He's recently named a fellow of the American Psychological Association and has published and written extensively on the topic. He really asserts a really different view of the literature, especially the meta-analysis, a sort of messy picture clouded with a lack of scientific consensus, and really what he considers errors in analysis and conclusions. I entered the conversation really skeptically um, and frankly a little bit confused on where we stand on video games and, and its impact on violence. And I have to say, I'm not sure I left it any differently. Well, that'll be at our interview for today. But first, I want to tell you about these new findings that actually came out at the very beginning of December that have continued to sort of boggle my mind over the last couple of weeks. And I keep keep coming back to this one particular paper. This is a paper from the lab of Christian Coast at the Max Planck Institute. And it's a paper that shows that some bacteria, and we probably are, we already knew this, this is not what was new in the paper, actually cooperate with each other. So they exchange metabolites. And that means that they don't have to, each one on their own, produce all of the metabolites that they need to survive, but rather with this kind of sharing, uh, with cooperation, they are able to survive maybe perhaps in, in harsher environments and so forth and, 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 and share. It gives new, new meaning to the word bacterial colony. Yes, yes, exactly. Yeah, there's some of these bacterial colonies are just a bunch of hippies, right? <laughs> They're sharing everything. <laughs> But what about those bacterium who decide they don't want to share? They want to cut and run. And you'd think that, and of course, because we can watch bacteria evolve with, you know, not a lot of time because we can watch them, you know, overturn generations and generations and generations, that eventually this cooperative behavior would just be selected out, right? That it wouldn't be beneficial enough that these bacterium, bacteria would continue to do it. So... Going into this this research study, the authors actually suspected that over time that this cooperative behavior would just get, you know, just go away. Um, but they found that the cooperative behavior exists under certain conditions, specifically when the bacteria are on a surface that's two-dimensional. So you can imagine like dental plaque being one example or a biofilm on top of like a wastewater um, reservoir or something like that. What the hell? Why does the geometry matter? Well, I mean, I think that 
exact questions of why the geometry matter are not exactly clear, except maybe there's some suggestion that in three-dimensional environments, the bacteria who don't cooperate, who are cheaters, if you will, benefit more because they're able to get all the nutrition that they need and, you know, they're not punished for not cooperating. But when you have this two-dimensional surface, those bacteria seem to get shunned. They seem to get isolated. So somehow the bacteria know who's cooperating and who's cheating, who's not providing any benefit to the group, if you will. And those oxotrophs, they're called, uh, get pushed out to the periphery or to places where, you know, it's maybe somewhat harder to live. And and so they, they get shunned. Wow, that's fascinating. Did they shed any light on how that process works of them figuring out who the cheaters are? Well, I don't I mean, from my reading of the paper, and the paper is called The Privatization of Cooperative Benefits Stabilizes Mutualistic Cross-Feeding Interactions in Spatially Structured Environments. Is um, that an economic theory paper? Or is that know, a it sounds paper? like it, right? Um, but no, it's in the ISME, the multi, a Multidisciplinary Journal of Microbial Ecology. Uh, and... Uh, no, so I I didn't quite understand exactly how the bacteria know other than they get these metabolites and they need them. And so if they're not getting them from their neighbors, you know, maybe there's a process of kind of inching away from those neighbors that aren't providing. Does that make sense? None of this totally makes sense to me, but I think that's okay. <laughs> So in any case, it turns out that the process of cooperation and cheating uh, can actually evolve in relatively simple conditions. All you need is a two-dimensional structure and a bunch of bacteria. I wonder if we can do this in like a nutrient agar plate or something like that. Yeah, I mean, yeah, I mean, so... Roughly two-dimensional. Well, so no, so they they did uh, show that in, on agar plates that, that, that you know, the the oxotrophs, <laughs> the cheaters, were disfavored um, under those conditions. But in a liquid culture, they were favored. So, um, you know, I guess there, there's a time to cooperate and a time to compete, just like our friends Adam Galinsky and Maurice Schweitzer told us a number of episodes ago. And that's true even if you are a bacterium. Well, I guess we'll put it on their audible gift list this year. Uh, my story this week comes from Rebecca Sachs. She's a cognitive neuroscientist at MIT that has been studying child's brain developments for a number of years. She mostly uses MRIs, looking at blood flow to certain regions while the child listens to a story or plays a game or participates in a number of sort of challenges, puzzle solving of the like. She's really trying to study theory of mind, basically how children think about other people's thoughts and their perception they're in. A really big, yeah, really interesting part of cognitive neuroscience. And this week in Smithsonian Magazine, she published a really darling image of a mother and son together in an MRI. It was really beautiful. And it showed this beautiful contrast in development between the two because it was an infant boy and a mother, and and the mother is kissing the, the boy on the forehead. It was just beautiful. And we'll post it um, on our Facebook page and Tumblr page for all of our listeners to look at. But what was really fascinating to me is Rebecca wrote why she did this, um, the, this image, because there had never been an image of a mother and son together in an MRI that she could ever find in literature. Have you ever seen one? Hmm. I guess not. It's, yeah, and I think it's partially because of how 
MRs work in the sense that you have to be still. It's not really a comfortable environment <laughs> uh, to be in one of those machines for five minutes uh, to get a, a clear image uh, come out. But her reasoning was was gorgeous to me. She she said there was no scientific reason whatsoever. She just wanted to create this beautiful artistic image, and it's of her and her son. Wow. Well, I actually know what that's like uh, because I had to put my son into an MRI when he was six months old, and it was horrible. <laughs> and uh, you know, it turned out to be a false alarm, which is great. And kudos to the amazing radiologists at UCSF who made it all go smoothly. But I mean, literally, he was kicking and screaming. And I was literally, you know, lying on top of him trying to keep him still. And I have no idea how they got any usable images out of that particular scan, but they did. It's amazing. Well, just know behind the scenes, there's probably some beauty in that image for such a rough period. <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> with that, let's take a short break. and We'll be back with my interview with Chris Ferguson. This episode is brought to you by Loot Crate. Would you classify yourself as a geek, gamer, or pop culture nerd? Then this yes. is... <laughs> yeah, me too. Then this is a subscription box for you. For less than $20 a month, you get six to eight items of gamer and pop culture licensed gear, apparel, collectibles, unique one-of-a-kind items, and more. Make sure to head to lootcrate.com minds and enter code minds to save $3 on any new subscription. Not that long ago, and depending on where you live, not so far away, Loot Crate blasted off into a voyage across the galaxy, searching the far reaches of space to find universally awesome gear. Using December's Star Wars The Force Awakens loot as a launch pad, they landed on some equally cosmic items from Halo 5 and more. With an exclusive Funko Pop and an exclusive shirt in this month's crate, this is the loot you're looking for. Basically, Loot Crate is like a friend who knows what you love and surprises you with an awesome present every month. And by the way, if you have a nerdy friend for whom you have no idea what to get, this might just be the gift for them. You have until the 19th at 9 p.m. Pacific to subscribe and receive that month's crate. And when the cutoff happens, that's it. It's over. So go to lootcrate.com slash minds and enter code minds to save $3 on your new subscription today. And this episode is sponsored by Zevia. Zevia is the zero calorie naturally sweetened soda that's clearly different. It has no sugar and no calories, but it's still somehow really delicious. Zevia is available in 15 different flavors like cream soda, black cherry, cola, ginger ale, or even tonic water. Always zero calories. And Zevia makes amazing guilt-free cocktails. I've actually tried one myself. It was pretty good. Whiskey and ginger ale, gin and tonic, which is the one I made, and so many more. Plus, Zevia is giving away thousands of free six-packs. To check it out, go to zevia.com slash podcast. That's Z-E-V-I-A dot com slash podcast. And this episode is sponsored by Harry's.com. Harry's is already disrupting the shaving industry, offering a better shaving experience at better value than giants like Schick and Gillette. Overpaying for drugstore razor blades is a bad habit that you should leave behind. So make the smart switch to Harry's. Harry's high-quality German-engineered blades are crafted for sharpness and precision. They're half the price of big-name drugstore brands, and they ship them for free straight to your door. And Harry's are simply some of the best razors I've ever used with a sleek design. Their starter set is just $15. That includes the razor, three blades, and your choice of Harry's shave cream, or foaming shave gel, which is the best. But as an added bonus, Harry's will give first-time customers $5 off if you use our coupon code, Inquiring Minds. 
That's H-A-R-R-Y-S dot com. Coupon code Inquiring Minds. Chris Ferguson, welcome to Inquiring Minds. Thank you for having me on today. It's a pleasure. So we're going to be talking about violence in video games. and But before I think we can really delve into the meat of the matter, I think we have to back up into a little bit of the history of why this became such a matter of focus in the in the public sphere. Can you give us a little bit of background of how this issue became so important and became an, a topic of interest in the scientific community? Yeah, sure. That's that's a great question. I mean, the, the short answer is that the you know sort of debates about video games really get wrapped into uh, issues of violence and mass shootings in, in in U.S. society. But but it's actually kind of fascinating if you look at if you look at the history of what scholars have been doing with video games. Uh, really, research into what we're calling violent video games began actually in the mid 1980s, with just a, a spattering of studies and. Um, at that point, people were talking about violent video games being things like Pac-Man and Zaxxon and, and so on and so forth. And, and you did have a few politicians and activists that were out there saying that, you know, these types of games or any type of game was causing mayhem among adolescents and violence and things like that. You had the, um, the U.S. Surgeon General at the time, C. Everett Coop, uh, who said that video games were one of the leading causes of family violence. This was going back into the early 1980s, but, from, from back part, then? From, from back, back then, then, yeah. Uh, from back then. Again, we're talking about games like, you know, Space Invaders and Asteroids that, uh, you know, but, but it was fairly uncommon still. And there wasn't really a lot of research being done, um, really even through the 90s. Um, and when you would see people doing research on video games, it was usually just, you know, some scholar would come in and do a study or two. Uh, they would then get bored and move on to other areas. And so there wasn't really a consistency among the scholars uh, through the 90s. And for the most part, most of the scholars really kind of were upfront about saying up until that point, there really wasn't much consistent there in terms of finding effects. Uh, you know, some studies did and some studies didn't find effects on, you know, aggression or, or, or other types of outcomes. But there just didn't seem to be a whole lot of interest. And, and what really seemed to change is right around 1999, where we had the Columbine massacre. Uh, there was a little bit of talk before that with some of the earlier school shootings that were occurring in the mid-1990s about, hey, these kids have played violent video games. Maybe there's a link there. Uh, but it really was the Columbine massacre in 1999 that I think in a lot of ways really changed the social narrative about violent video games and changed the scholarship on violent video games. Um, so Columbine happened in 1999, and you could almost draw a line in the scholarship. So before that, again, you had these people kind of popping in and popping out. They were pretty honest about saying there's, you know, inconsistent evidence. And literally by the year 2000, um, you had people saying that the effects were like smoking on lung cancer, that there was no doubt anymore, uh, that violent video games caused aggression. Uh, this well, was a sure thing. Yeah, go ahead. Let's, let's, well, let's back up for a second. So what in... In the wake of Columbine, there was some association that those two kids were playing video games, and that may have had some influence. Did that actually spur funding into the area to do these studies, or did people start to independently do these studies because of that? Yeah, I think there was a little bit of both um, that occurred. So there were hearings um, about media violence that occurred after the Columbine massacre that occurred in the U.S. Congress. There, there have been hearings before in the 90s about video game violence and things like that. Um, but they certainly did 
you know, stir a lot of political interest into the issue of violent video games and the idea that violent video games could contribute to these, you know, mass shootings or other forms of violence. Um, there was a flood of legislation um, right around the time of Columbine through the, you know, the early 2000s, uh, trying to regulate uh, the sale of violent video games uh, to minors. And there was grant funding. You know, there, there were efforts to, to fund uh, some of this, uh, you know, research. Uh, so I think I think all of a sudden after Columbine, there was a ton of attention on the issue of video game violence causing violence or aggression in in society. And that came in the form of at least the potential for grant funding, um, the potential for newspaper headlines, uh, the potential for prestige, uh, you know, to basically rub elbows with politicians um, and activist groups uh, on these types of issues. So it really put a big spotlight on to this particular issue. And in many respects, scholars are like everybody else. You put a spotlight onto a particular issue and we're like moths um, and uh, we'll, we'll, we'll tend to hover, you know, towards it. It begs a question like video games are evolving really quickly uh, in terms of the the technology in terms of the the style in terms of the the components of the game how are scientists able to take a snapshot of what's actually happening in video games compared to where the industry is now given that most science runs behind sort of current times and in ability to sort of track effect absolutely it, it is it is very difficult and and i mean that's, that's really one of the you know the controversies uh, about the field is one that it's difficult to keep up with the technology so by the time that you're doing a study using the xbox one they're now starting to think about the oculus rift or vr technology or things like that so and with the slow pace of scientific publishing, it is very difficult to keep up with the technology. So, I mean, we're seeing studies that are coming out um, now that are still using data from the early 2000s um, and such uh, and talking about games that nobody plays anymore. And sometimes that can look a little funny, you know, when, you know, people in the general public, particularly gamers, see these studies and they're going, wow, people are complaining about Grand Theft Auto 3 um, and nobody's touched that game in, you know, seven or eight years um, at this point. Um, and there's also a, a problem with the the context in which a lot of the studies occur um, that, you know, gaming now is very social uh, as an activity uh, for most players. Um, but still, most of our studies consider gaming as an isolated activity. We take people into the lab and have them play you know, mostly by themselves still and maybe only for 15 minutes. And, and then we try to measure them on some form of behavior. So Oh, wow. 15 minutes. That's so that's not very much time. You know, I just got Fallout 4 and that's going to be like a hundred hour game for me at least. And I'm not a very good gamer. So like it's probably going to be 200 hours if I really want to actually get there. And is that just sort of a limitation of how some of these studies are conducted and who participates in them? Are, are we still talking about college undergraduates being like the chief driver of a lot of these studies? Yeah, college undergraduates are definitely the chief driver of uh, particularly experimental studies. So when we bring people into the lab, um, it typically is college undergraduates. And, and the reason for that is pretty simple. It's because they're free. Whereas, uh, you know, have, having done, you know, some studies with teenagers, uh, you're trying to bring families and teens into the lab, they're expensive. They want money to bother doing that sort of thing. Um, so, you know, for, for most of us that may have limited funding and such, being able to use college students really does seem like a, uh, a, a, an easy way of doing uh, some of this research. So just so our audience uh, and us are all on the same page, we're using we're going to be using a lot of terms like violence and aggression. Uh, I'm hoping we can actually come to some sort of uh, 
unified definition of what that is. Is that even possible? Well, if we managed it today during the radio show, that would be uh, an absolutely stupendous advance for the field. I'll, I'll say that <laughs> much. <laughs> yeah, I mean, we, we definitely have uh, you know controversies about you know both how to define and how to measure uh, these uh, types of variables. So even even this, you know, we talk about violent video games, but even figuring out what a violent video game is is very difficult. So so typically, the way that a violent video game is defined by the scholarly field would include almost all video games. You know, so if there's any form of aggressive action between two characters in the games, it con- it's, it's a violent video game. So quite literally, Pac-Man eating the ghosts makes Pac-Man a violent video game. Um, and in, in fact, a, a scholar had to testify to that effect during a murder trial back in 2013. So um, the, the way that we think about these concepts in the scholarly field is very different from the way that the general public uh, thinks about these things. They're concerned about Grand Theft Auto V, not Pac-Man. Whereas technically, according to media effects theory, Pac-Man should have the same effect as Grand Theft Auto V because they're both violent video games. Um, that may sound absurd, and, and, and frankly, I think it's absurd, but it, you know, but that's the way that the field or the theories in the field basically um, work. Now, what you have, of course, is with the outcomes, you're talking about things like aggression and violence, and they tend to be used fairly interchangeably, uh, which is really unfortunate. Now, they're defined differently, um, but even the scholars sometimes will take a study where, uh, you know, they're having people give each other some hot sauce or bursts of white noise or having someone put their hand in a bucket of ice water. And then in their literature review or discussion, they're suddenly talking about mass shootings. Um, and that's crazy. You know, I mean, th- that's not to say these studies aren't interesting or, or perhaps important in, in some respects. Um, but there really has been a lot of sloppiness in the field about, you know, taking the things that we're doing, having people play for 15 minutes in a safe environment where we're telling them that it's OK to give another person hot sauce or ice water or a burst of white noise. And then we're talking about knifings in schools and shootings in public and gun violence and, and things like that. And and. So there, there is a lot of sloppiness in, in, in the concepts. Um, so at, beyond the fact that I'm deeply concerned about psychology studies that still use hot sauce and ice water, um, I have to ask, is there something positive to report in the sense of, of are there studies out there that do a much better job of, of evaluating video games in a more current uh, context? Like when it comes to society wanting to know, like, does Grand Theft Auto V have an impact on aggression in in the people that are playing it? Do we have anything to say about that? Yeah, that's that's a great question. So, I mean, the, the short answer, or maybe the flip answer, is no. <laughs> but um, but I but I expand upon that a little bit. I mean, the the trick, of course, with experimental studies is. Um, that we can't have people do, you know, super aggressive acts in the, in the lab. We can't have people beat each other up or really hurt each other. We really can't even ethically make, make people even think they're doing uh, these sorts of activities because that could be harmful to the participants. So we're, we're really, you know, restrained in terms of what we can do ethically uh, for, for aggression studies. Um, now, in terms of the gameplay side of things, there, there are some studies that are trying to make gameplay a bit more natural. So there are some studies out there where people are playing together or playing competitively against real people. Um, at least with like the ice water tasks, you can have someone look another person in the face when they're putting their hand in the ice water. So you can see a real person at least uncomfortable with what you're doing to them. So that can be a little bit better than some of the other tasks like the hot sauce and the, the noise burst and that kind of stuff. 
Um, but we re really are restrained in terms of what we can measure. Now, now with survey, you know, longitudinal correlational studies, we can ask uh, about a lot more stuff. So we can ask about violence and bullying and real outcomes that people are interested in. But there again, we're restrained by two issues. One, of course, is the traditional correlation doesn't equal causation issue. And uh, the second is people lie um, when you give them surveys. And uh, so we don't always know that the responses are, are accurate. And particularly concerning when you're asking people about violence is something that's called mischievous responding. This is a fairly well-documented thing. And what mischievous responding means is that a certain percentage of your sample will say stuff that's just stupid because they think it's funny. Um, so literally, I could put a survey out there to adults or teens and ask people, true or false, I have had sex with a tree. And 10% of people will say true to that. Um, and it's obviously silly. I mean, it's obviously they're trying to say something that is humorous. Um, and that sort of thing can cause spurious correlations, particularly when you're trying to correlate two things that may be fairly extreme. Um, so if you're looking at, you know, extremities in video game violence and extremities in aggressive behavior or violent behavior or bullying, you can get spurious correlations if you're not scanning but, for this. But don't some of these meta-analyses uh, take that into account already uh, when they're doing some of their statistical analysis of the of the findings? Not, not really, not for the most part. Uh, most meta-analyses, and this is actually a problem across meta-analyses and behavioral science in general, is if they're meta, doing meta-analyses of correlational data, so they're looking at survey data, um, many of them still rely primarily on bivariate correlations. So this is simply, you're, you're looking at the correlation between video game violence and aggressiveness, however you measure that, without controlling for anything else at all. So you're not controlling for gender, you're not controlling for, you know, pre-test levels of aggressiveness, you're not controlling for family environment, uh, nothing, nothing is being controlled. And most of these studies that are being included into these meta-analyses don't include any checks for things like mischievous responding or unreliable responding. Uh, so there really isn't much there in terms of quality control that's uh, preventing spurious correlations from misinforming the general public or policymakers. Is this generally an issue of reproducibility in the field of, of psychology in general? And we're seeing you're, you're illustrating some of the specifics with, uh, with this study, or is this even greater than, than what you're intimating right now? I would say that this is part of what we're calling, what a lot of people are calling a replication crisis in psycho psychological science. So there, there are a number of different areas um, ranging from everything from social priming to positive psychology to some of the fMRI stuff. Um, that is, is, is showing some difficulty with uh, replication. So what, what that means is that a study is put out there, uh, it gets a lot of press, a lot of attention, but then another group of researchers come along and try to do the exact same study and can't produce the same uh, results. Um, and the thing about this with you know, the sort of replication crisis is that a lot of these follow-up studies, a lot of these replication studies um, are trying to employ better methodology. So they're actually doing things like pre-registering the study. So they're actually, you know, putting the, the basic design and measurements and statistical, you know, pr proposed statistical analyses out there in the public in advance um, so that they can't manipulate uh, their uh, data analysis down the road. Um, and in a lot of these replication studies, whether we're talking about video game research or whether we're talking about other areas like social priming, for instance, uh, we're seeing that these replication studies are uh, are not replicating a lot of these things that we thought were 
quote unquote, absolutely true um, in, in the past. There, there just was recently a, a replication, um, uh, you know, multiple lab replication study that was published, I believe it was in science um, that, you know, suggested that, and I, and I don't remember the exact number, but somewhere between 60 to 70% of studies they tried to replicate, they, they had a lot of difficulty replicating them. Either the effect size was much lower or they couldn't obtain statistical significance. So, yeah, we, we covered that in uh, a previous episode because it's a a huge area of concern, and I imagine it's magnified in this context when we have a hard time even uh, agreeing on on some of the definitions of what, what we're studying in this case. Uh, I want to track back to, to video games themselves. I mean, one of the reasons you're on this show is that we, um, uh, about a month ago, had... Uh, Brad Bushman on the show, who highlighted a couple meta-analyses that a few um, of our listeners uh, took exception with, uh, both in sort of their take on the literature and their own sort of personal experience. And and you chimed in with some thoughts as well. Uh, do you care to expound upon some of those thoughts on some of the meta-analyses that Brad cited in, in terms of some of their findings on how video games do affect aggression, especially in, in youth? Yeah, sure. I mean, one of the first, you know, concerns I have, I mean, with a lot of the way that the field is presented. So, you know, so we talk about these meta-analyses um, and there have been, you know, at this point, you know, I don't know, half a dozen, maybe more different meta-analyses looking at uh, video game violence or other forms of media violence. And just like the field in general, the meta-analyses are all over the place. So there are some meta-analyses that suggest that there may be some small effects uh, for video games on aggression, and there are some meta-analyses, uh, in, you know, including some that I've done, uh, some that John Sherry has done, um, that suggests that the effects are either minimal or might be explained better by things other than the violent content in games. And so, so my first concern, of course, is with this idea that some people only mention studies that support their particular view. Um, and, and of course, we all have opinions and, and we all have views about how this stuff works or doesn't work. Um, but I am concerned about sort of the uh, maybe the ethics, of, for lack of a better way of thinking it, of, of the way that we communicate our science to the, uh, the to the general public. And, and, I, and I take exception to in general when scholars only mention it's what we call citation bias, right? When scholars only mention studies that support their own personal views. And, and that seems to me to be a very anti-science uh, type of, of, of practice. But, but even if we look at these things, what you tend to find is that, you know, in some of these meta-analyses, you find small but significant bivariate correlations between violent video game playing and aggressiveness. Usually, you know, for the more statistically minded people, an effect size of about uh, a correlation coefficient of about 0.2. So really talking about 4% of shared variance between violent video game playing and aggressiveness. But what these meta-analyses, including um, Brad's, which is sort of interesting, find is that when you control even for things like gender or for longitudinal studies, time one aggression, sort of pre-existing aggression, those correlation coefficients drop to very close to zero. So you might be talking about a correlation coefficient about 0.06 or 0.07, less than 1% uh, or even really less than half a percent of uh, shared variance between your variables, controlling only really for one or two things. Um, and that oftentimes doesn't get communicated very effectively uh, either. Um, and the third thing is we, we have a problem with this field with something called publication bias. Uh, so, so we know pretty effectively, pretty, pretty reliably at this point, 
that we've had a problem with uh, a reluctance in the field to publish null studies, so studies that don't find uh, well, effects. Well, that's a, a like a science wide problem. Yes. <laughs> yeah, it, it absolutely is. Um, and, and, and of course, it's even a bigger issue in some areas like medical science, where the issues may be whether you get a particular surgery or medication or not. I mean, you know, we can imagine the, the dramatic impact of a publication bias in some of those other fields. Um, but, um, but, but we do know that publication bias is one factor that is causing um, spurious correlations um, in, in this area. And when you look at that and, and sort of look for or impute or infer where the missing studies may be, they at least suggest uh, that the effect sizes are actually much lower than is being reported um, in, uh, in, in these meta-analyses. Um, and really, the other thing too is these, these meta-analyses don't really look at some of the uh, you know, lack of standardization of aggression measures, some of the research or expectancy effects. Um, so in, in my recent meta-analyses that just got published in September, one of the things I looked at was citation bias, was you know, when scholars are only reporting research on one area of the field that supports their personal views and not acknowledging um, null studies or, or studies that conflict with their personal opinions. And, and there was a correlation there. In other words, where scholars were engaging in citation bias, their studies tended to find higher effect sizes. So that suggests um, that there may be some research or expectancy effects that are creeping into some of these studies, particularly when the, when the analysis plan or the measurement plan is not standardized so that even in good faith, even unconsciously, scholars can pick and choose outcomes that fit their hypotheses and ignore those that don't. So this opens up a couple questions to me, because some of the effects you're talking about are are not effects that are specific to video games in any way, shape, or form. Citation bias, uh, you know, exclusion of null, that's an issue science-wide. Uh, usually, like, that is uh, addressed to a certain extent um, by just the size of the field studying the topic, that we can sort of at least come to some sort of consensus around it just because they're the sheer number of, of studies out there and the people looking at the topic. How big of a field is this? How many people are actually really studying aggression in video games in a significant way? Sure. Um, it's, it's dominated by a relatively small group of people, uh, but there's a much larger group of people that are interested in it and doing research that are perhaps less dominant you know, players. So I, I would say there probably are six or seven individuals who have his, been historically dominating um, in the field. And those were in many ways sort of like the post-Columbine era uh, types of folks, people that have been doing television research, uh, television violence research for years or decades before that, uh, now getting involved into video game uh, violence research. So I think that, you know, post-Columbine, you know, a relatively small group of scholars really kind of set the agenda and the tone uh, of in the late 2000s, so 2005 to 2010, when you saw more people coming in, a lot more skeptical views, perhaps some younger scholars getting involved uh, in the field. So yeah, at this point, I think the field has you know, expanded quite a bit and blossomed quite a bit, and there are much more people getting involved. Um, but there still is that dominant core group of individuals that, uh, that, that I think um, you know, have certainly been highly uh, influential. They're, they're probably at this point, if you're looking at really video game and, and aggression studies, they probably are getting close to about 200 studies. Um, a lot of them are college students um, at this point in time. Um, but it's really, really difficult to make any kind of consensus statement based on those studies because they're all over the place. There are some that find effects. There's some that don't find effects. 
There are some that suggest that playing video game, violent, violent video games may actually reduce aggression. Uh, that's probably the smallest pool, but there are some of those studies as well. Um, so, I mean, all, for as much attention as this topic gets, 200 studies actually doesn't sound like a whole lot to me, given that this is really, this isn't a U.S. specific issue by any stretch of the imagination. This is really an international issue. The, you know, the number of people playing video games around the world continues to rise in a significant way, and the size of that industry continues to grow. Uh, The one thing I really want to poke at is, uh, I mean, you really illustrate this idea that there's not an idea of consensus around this. There is a lot of disagreement within the scientific community on, on what's true. Is there something that you do have any sort of consensus about in this field? Um... Not much. Uh, the probably the closest thing I would say that people have to a consensus is in a related area, and, and I even hesitate to use. So, I, so I have objections to the use of the word consensus anyway. But that's that's a whole different issue. But uh, probably the closest thing you can say to there being a consensus is um, that people probably would agree, or scholars would probably agree, for the most part that there are probably some folks out there who show something that looks vaguely like video game addiction somewhere. Um, but that's about the closest we can say. And, 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 and what exactly we mean by video game addiction and what that means in terms of how serious it is, how prevalent it is, nobody agrees on that. But probably, you know, 90% of scholars that are involved in video game addiction research would probably agree that there's an animal out there that exists that probably is this thing. Um, but whether we should be comparing that to heroin addiction or gambling addiction or whether it's, it's, you know, 0.01% of the gaming population or 10% of the gaming population, how to measure it, no consensus on that. Um, so there, there really are very, very few things that we really have any kind of true consensus on, um, with video games other than a lot of people play them. So in your opinion, then, is there, is there a warrant to keep studying violence and aggression in the context of video games, is there enough positive findings in the field that suggests that we should study this area a whole lot more? Or are we at a point where we just we don't even have the answer to that question? I, I think, quite honestly, if, if you're thinking of this from a public policy, you know, funding sort of issue, my personal opinion is that if we're thinking about like if we're really thinking about reducing gun violence and, and thinking about where to spend our money, I, I think this area is done. I I, I think that if we can't find anything consistent or meaningful after essentially three decades of research, it's time to move on to other things that may be more pressing and more important. That's not to say that there shouldn't be people uh, studying it. Uh, you know, so in some ways I'm, I'm, I'm thinking differently from a taxpayer perspective versus a scholar perspective. I would never discourage people from studying it. Um, however, do I want my tax dollars going to fund it? Uh, I'm not entirely sure. Um, and I think that... And, and why do you say that? You Because it's impossible to get any return on that investment? Or is it just not the right question for society to be asking? What what perspective are you bringing to that opinion? A little of both. I mean, I mean, I think that, you know, certainly there, you know, again, thinking as a taxpayer, there are so many issues methodologically with the field that I'm not sure it's ready for prime time yet. Uh, at the same time, I, I just don't think the data is there to suggest this is where we ought to be prioritizing our resources. So, and this is going to be in some ways, you know, this is going to be correlational data and even ecological fallacy to some extent. But where we've had people talking about, you know, video games being similar to smoking and lung cancer and talking about gun violence. And this is, you know, kids everywhere are playing these things. They're playing more and more hours than they have in the past. 
if you look at the actual epidemiological data during the era in which you know people have been playing more and more violent video games, that that, that number has skyrocketed. Violence in society has plummeted. You know, youth violence is down by over eighty percent in the last two decades. Bullying is down. Uh, and that, that certainly is correlational data. So we certainly can't say that video games are causing that kind of decline. But in terms of, you know, if you're talking about you know, the effects being similar to smoking and lung cancer, the idea that video games and other media cause 10 to 30 percent of societal violence, these are real claims by scholars. Um, no, uh, the data just aren't there. Um, and we need to look at other areas that we're seeing better data from. Um, where we may get more bang for our buck. And, and the concern really is that this debate about video games has been so heated, it's been so public, that it sucks a lot of the oxygen out of the room for other areas that may be less, quote-unquote, sexy, uh, but may be more important. You know, after we're talking about gun violence, we're not talking about poverty very much. We're not talking about mental health very much. A little bit, but not as much as we should be. Uh, we're not talking about you know social and educational disparities in our culture. We're talking about video games, um, and and I think in many ways that was one of the biggest disservices that our field did uh, for public policy was to encourage people to talk about video games in relation to gun violence and discourage them from talking about things like you know poverty and mental health reform. And the unfortunate thing is people have to remember when you look at, you know, organizations like, you know, and I've been very critical of the American Psychological Association in the past, and I'm actually a fellow of the APA, you know, in full disclosure. Um, they, they, you have to remember that, you know, when they make statements about video games and stuff, this is a guild. This is an organization that people like myself pay into to represent us. Um, they are not necessarily a wholly objective organization. And so they are a group that wants to get grant money, wants to get newspaper headlines, wants to get prestige on this particular issue. And they do a lot of good. I mean, as a, as a psychologist, I want them out there fighting for me. But when people absorb, you know, information from a group like that, they have to remember what the interests of that organization is. And objective data is not uh, necessarily the main interest of an organization uh, like that. So, so when we talk about like public policy and funding, that is really my main concern is that the money and time and resources that go into this issue are being taken away from other issues that are much more important and where the data is today if we can't come up with something to make a compelling case in 30 years, I think it's time to move on to something else. So if you're suggesting that how we've studied violence in video games hasn't been uh, done well or, or you know, even greater, not necessarily the right thing to be studying, is there something that we should really be looking at within uh, the video game realm that is actually interesting to, to sort of poke at now? Yeah, sure. I think that, you know, one of the interesting areas that's going to get a lot of attention uh, forthcoming is the issue of how female characters or women are presented in uh, video games. So there's been a lot of attention to this issue with the perception that there is uh, a sexualization of female characters or that female characters are placed in uh, minor roles and cliche roles like the damsel in distress uh, type of roles. And so there, particularly in certain genres of games, there, there aren't as many or enough, uh, positive portrayals of fe strong female protagonists in a lot of the, a lot of games. And these are similar to issues we face in movies and television and other forms of media, uh, as well. And I think this is going to become a, a, an interesting field and a burgeoning field. And, and I think it's one that as we're really just starting in this area of research, we, 
want to learn from the mistakes of the video game violence debate in order to make this as rigorous a field um, as possible. And one of the things we have to remember is that we have to s separate our activism from the science. Um, and, and I'll say up front that you know, I consider myself an activist for better representations of female characters in, in video games. Um, and But I think that that activism and scholarly inquiry have to be two different processes. So if we're looking at effects, the idea that you know more sexist portrayals of females and video games may have certain types of effects, whether that you know increases body dissatisfaction in female players or increases male hostility towards women and male players, um, we have to remain aware of the possibility that uh, the effects might not be there. Um, but that doesn't necessarily decrease or diminish our activism efforts. So if we're going to be, if we're going to be a, an advocate uh, for you know, better representation of females, I think one of the big mistakes is to tie that to the idea of effects. Um, and, and I think that is the mistake really that happened with the video game violence uh, debate. People were sort of conflating the activism, their objections morally to violent content with the idea that if it was offensive, it also had to be harmful. And those are two very separate issues. And if we're going to delve into this issue of the way that women are represented in video games, I think we have to keep that um, separate. And, and sort of the example I use is sort of a good example out of the video game violence debate is uh, the way that the International Committee for the Red Cross addressed violence in war games. And so they were actually were concerned about war crimes being portrayed in a lot of action-oriented war games and such. When you say war games, what do you mean? Well, I mean, really we're talking about, you know, uh, first-person shooter military-themed games like Call of Duty, Medal of Honor, um, you know, things like that. Uh, and so they were, you know, sort of concerned on an advocacy level about, you know, you, you be in these games and shoot a bunch of people, and sometimes those might even be civilians in some, some of these games, and there really were no consequences or no discussions about, you know, those types of issues. And um, so the International Red Cross... Um, really kind of addressed this issue in a very smart way, I thought, in that they didn't come out and make claims saying that playing these games are going to cause kids to become war criminals or make them more violent. Um, they really just kind of came out and said, hey, look, you know, here's the way that things are being represented in these games. Um, we're concerned about that. Here's how we would like to see things be represented in at least some of the games. You know, it doesn't have to be every single one. We're not asking for people to get rid of war-themed games. We're not asking people to get rid of violent games. We would just like to have a few of these games actually kind of bring up war crimes and discuss them or present them in an intelligent way so that players are given an opportunity to think about the ramifications of war crimes and things like that. I thought that was brilliant. Um, you know, it really it didn't put the industry on the defensive. It didn't discredit itself by making broad claims of effects that you know can't be substantiated. Um, so if we return that to you know the issue of the way that women are represented in video games, we already have a few studies that are coming out and they're already following the same pattern as the violent video game stuff. So some studies are suggesting that players may see an increase in sexism or body dissatisfaction. Other studies are saying there's no effects you know, for more sexist portrayals in, in video games. So for people that are thinking about advocating, you know, including myself, for uh, better representation of female characters in video games, I think we need to take that out of the effects type of, of debate and focus in a, if you're going to advocate, be an advocate and admit that this is an issue that morally you would like to see things improve. And there's nothing wrong with that. Trying to tie that into this is a public health crisis is probably a mistake and could actually backfire uh, down the road.
So I'm a sort of moderate gamer. I like I don't quite assume the the title of gamer in in its full glory uh, as a hardcore gamer for sure. I'm curious what you would tell a person like me that's sort of uh, I I play about what the science says about what my habit is actually um, doing to me, what its impact on my life is. If there's you know anything to say at all. Yeah, I mean, the reality is as long as you are going to work and paying your bills and spending time with your family in a way that's keeping all of these other entities happy, you're, you're basically meeting your other life responsibilities, then things are fine. It's really not something to worry about. Uh, if you're skipping work or you're, you're not spending time with your kids or your wife or spouse – um, in order to play video games, then you may want to start to ask yourself, am I playing too much? You know, have I let my habit get uh, out of control? But of course, that's, that's the same for any habit that you may get involved in uh, if you're spending too much time with it. Um, but uh, yeah, for the most part, uh, the, the really the main effects of, of, of gaming are the same as any other hobby uh, for the most part, that um, it, it reduces stress to some extent. It gives you something to do. It's an opportunity to socialize with others. And just like any other hobby, sometimes it might irritate you and you may get a little bit angry. Um, so the, instead of thinking about games being similar to smoking and lung cancer, we really ought to think about them as being similar to playing cards uh, with somebody. For the most part, it's fun, it's social, it's a distraction. Every so often, somebody loses and throws the cards across the room. Um, and that's about it. That's about really what we're talking about. Um, so I think you're good to go. On that wonderful note of rage quitting, I think we'll call it an interview. Chris Ferguson, thank you so much for joining us on Inquiring Minds. And thank you for having me on today. So I had a really tough time in that interview. And I will acknowledge to our listeners that I was just getting over. I was probably in the middle of a bad cold during it. So I apologize for my hacking and coughing that you probably heard in the background. But I had a tough time with Chris's assertions, especially around the the problems with the way that the science is being conducted. Well, I have to say kudos to you because I felt like you really kept him on task. And there are definitely questions that you asked that I was saying yes, yes, and pumping my fist to you as I was listening. <laughs> and I agree with you. You know, he's very articulate. And I, you know, I think that that he brought up some really interesting points, but I still left that interview feeling dissatisfied. So the one thing that I feel gets lost in this in this discussion is the uh, the mere weapons effect, which is extremely strong. It's extremely robust. We know that merely the presence of weapons causes people to behave in ways that are different. And sure, you know, I don't know to what extent you can translate behavior in the lab that is somewhat innocuous, like making someone eat something hot or putting their hand in a cold presser or, you know, some other ways. But, you you know, we don't really have other ways of, of measuring aggression and, and violence. And when we have, when or at least not, and when I, when I say we, <laughs> I mean people who actually do the research, clearly not me, you know, Brad Bushman did talk about that study in which we wa they watched, uh, they observed kids in the playground behaving um, and actually saw evidence of kind of hitting behaviors and other kind of aggressive acts increase when the boys in this case um, were had had played a video game as opposed to observed one. And, you know, I so the mere weapons effect he did not address. And I don't know how he would address that. Um, but it me it makes me feel that you can't even really have this conversation without at least 
a, you know, acknowledging that there is this strong and robust and, you know, multiply replicated effect. Let me play devil's advocate for a second. Sure. So one of the things that Chris asserted that rang true to me was that the research that's being conducted on a lot of these video games is not consistent with the video games that are being played now. They don't include these uh, in- include these social elements, which is a strong part of gaming nowadays. They don't include the types of games that we're really referring to now. They're still playing kind of old school games. Did you find that argument hold water to you? No, but that's just that's just not true. I mean, there are certainly more recent studies that I've read of people playing first person shooter games. And there are studies of people who are playing against other people, or at least being thinking that they are playing against other people. So I mean, maybe that was true of some of a lot of the studies that, you know, happened 10 years ago, or even five years ago. But certainly in the last few years, I've read studies of neuroscientists who have looked at people playing the exact types of video games that seem to be most popular. And, you know, I think that that's only going to increase. So his call for stop stopping funding to this research seems completely misplaced to me. I mean, if if there really isn't a consensus yet, I don't understand why it's a waste of money to continue to study this when there clearly are disagreements, according to him, amongst the people who are researching this. Although I do also, on that point, want to read the title of a um, of an article that Brad Bushman published in 2014 in the Journal of the Psychology of Popular Media Culture. So I don't know what the impact factor of this particular journal is, but I assume that it went under peer review. And the title is, There is Broad Consensus. <laughs> media researchers agree that violent media increase aggression in children and pediatricians and parents concur. So I don't know about the pediatrician and parents part, but the fact that Bushman got a paper published in which, you know, there is a, a peer reviewed that there is broad consensus. I mean, I, you know, it, it suggests that, I mean, and again, I don't, I don't know to what extent this is something that how we define scientific consensus, right, is probably up for debate. Is it enough to have a handful of researchers um, like Chris Ferguson, for example, um, who don't agree and vehemently don't agree and do work in this particular area to say there isn't a consensus? But you know, in this paper. Brad Bushman and his colleagues talked to 371 media psychologists and mass communication scientists and um, they, you know, who completed an online anonymous online survey. And the overwhelming majority of researchers believe that violent media increased aggression in children. Now, I don't know how much that translates to adults, right? That particular you know, um, paper, I haven't, I, I, I don't know. So, so it's possible that there's something special about children. It's also possible that children have been more studied, since that seems to be an issue that is probably of more and more important to people who are really interested in this topic, right? Since children don't, you know, can't give themselves consent, right? And, They're not adults. And I think this is actually what you're pointing to is probably the crux of the takeaway for me is we can't assess where the consensus is. We're not psychologists that have studied this issue for for a decade. And we can acknowledge that there are conflicting reports, but it's hard to figure out where, um, uh, where the consensus lies. But what I walked away from is the kinds of questions that most people that I talk to, like the every man on the street that plays video games, wants answered. Does playing this video game for a couple hours where I blow off steam make me more aggressive and more violent? We don't have clear answers for those people yet. And 
the question Chris was really putting forth is he was really saying that it's probably going to be unlikely we ever get to an answer for that every man question, which seems unreasonable to me. I mean, I think there's still a lot we can learn. I think that there is plenty of evidence that it has an effect on you. I mean, for one thing, if it didn't raise your heart rate, for example, and give you an adrenaline rush, would you keep doing it? No. But, you know, the 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 running on a treadmill will make you potentially more aggressive if somebody startles you from behind, for example, because you are in this heightened state, right? Physically. So, you know, I think the the question is to what extent does playing a video game, you know, more specifically, go above and beyond the kind of heart rate increases um, that can happen with exercise or in other conditions that can affect your behavior. So, you know, I, I think it's kind of, I don't know, missing the point to say, look, you know, there's just no evidence that video gaming has any effect on how you feel. It certainly does. Otherwise, you wouldn't keep doing it if it didn't have any effect on you, right? Now, that doesn't mean that necessarily it's going to make you um, more likely to go and, you know, shoot up a school. That link hasn't been made yet, obviously. Um, But it also... I mean, I I also feel like we kind of want to understand what are those changes and why, you know, in some people might they be larger or smaller. So, for example... You know, there are um, there are studies that, that suggest that there are certain personality factors like impulsivity, for example, that mediate whether or not you sort of have a bigger effect on your potential for a- aggression and so forth. Um, but I think saying that, you know, we don't we've been studying this for 30 years and we haven't come to a consensus, so we should just stop studying it, it really misses the point that even if you're a video gamer, you know, I think you would want to know. I mean, I'm a musician and I want to know exactly how music affects me for so many reasons, the littlest of which says, you know, so that I can understand myself better and so that I can make more rational decisions about my behavior, knowing that certain impulses or, you know, certain that I might that that the kind of decisions that I make after I listen to music or after I play music might be influenced by my internal state. So I think it brings us to the interesting place. And this is a place where science and society really collide. He posed a question near the end, or tried to address this in a way, that some of this has been driven by a question of whether we should be uh, addressing content in video games from a science perspective or from a moral perspective. Like, should we depict women in that way in video games uh, and look for a scientific answer to that, or should we just make a moral judgment on what what it should be? And that's really an interesting place where this research collides in a lot of people's uh, world. There is tension there. Yeah, uh, you know, and I, I have to say there was a part of me that really felt that that kind of reasoning so- started to sound a little hypocritical to me because he admitted that there isn't a lot of evidence that, uh, you know, depicting women in these ways on these video games has any real effect on either women or the men who watch them. He was saying, again, that we don't have the science to prove that. And he was saying that even though we don't have the science to prove that, we should just still put policies in place or we should still think about, you know, not showing, not depicting women in this in this objectifying way in video games. But if that's the case, dude, the same argument can be made for why we shouldn't, you know, 
allow people who are playing video games to run over little old ladies on the street or depict certain minorities or depict any kind of, you know, prejudicial or stereotypical situation. And I know that that happens in video games all the time. I mean, you can choose who your enemy is on the basis of the color of their skin or, you know, their name or their religion. And if it's not okay to objectify women because maybe that somehow affects how those women are perceived in society, how can it possibly be okay to objectify another group that way. Well, I will say in its defense, the running down old grannies video game is really, really fun. And you should give it a chance <laughs> before you pass judgment on it. I'm not, uh, I'm I not saying the, we shouldn't allow it. I'm just saying that you can't have one argument about women and then throw out the whole violence argument because, you know, there hasn't been that, that the effects haven't been solidified in a way that is satisfying to you. I personally don't think that uh, science is an interesting way to answer the moral question, though. I think uh, it, it's just, ne I don't think it's ever going to lead to a satisfying result. We have very few examples within science where it's done so, in uh, a result that actually enacts change. Uh, because I think this this topic of whether video games actually induce aggression and violence and what in the real context of it is, do they increase the likelihood of somebody shooting up somebody in real life? I think uh, it's going to be really hard to answer that link question. Um, and I, it's hard to imagine us coming to a scientific answer to that question that's ever going to be satisfying. Uh, that motivates us to make changes to the video game culture. I mean, I, I think you're right. I also think it's going to be more and more important to study it because games are going to become more and more immersive. And there was a pub there was somebody just published about how 3D playing 3D video games can affect um, can enhance memory. Uh, you know, there in and you know it's in the Journal of Neuroscience and it was from the University of California in Irvine. And so there's this idea that because it's more realistic, you can have you know a bigger effect on the hippocampus and other memory related areas and so forth compared to say other two dimensional games. So, you know, <laughs> that this the, the, the same we have to continue to study, uh, you know, the other effects that this kind of immersive environment will have on our behavior, you know, in order for us to understand it fully. Uh, we can't just shy away from it because the video gaming industry or people who play video games, you know, don't want to hear the truth. And I'm not even saying that necessarily it's a bad thing that your heart rate or that, you know, that you that your body goes into a state in which you become perhaps more prone uh, to violence and aggression. If you can understand that, um, maybe then you just need to make decisions. Like, for example, we don't allow people to drink and drive because we know that after they've been drinking, they don't drive very well. <laughs> so maybe we need to put, you know, some kinds of checks and balances in place like that. Like take a breather after you've been playing the video game for four, for, you know, four hours. Don't argue with your partner um, as soon as they come home, because maybe that makes it more likely that you will engage in a, in a kind of, in a, in a pattern of domestic violence. I don't know. I think the question mark is still there. But there is one more thing that I wanted to just give a quick rant about. You are fired up about this. <laughs> Sorry. Um, and, and that actually gets to, you know, I'm sure some people will say, oh, you, you know, you clearly have a bias against video games. Um, this is clearly motivating where you're coming from. And that's absolutely true. Um, I mean, I don't, I actually, I mean, I, I probably do. I, I just don't play video games. So all I know is from what I've, you know, observed and read and seen and the opinions that I formed. So maybe I would think very differently, um, you know, if I, if I was a, a, a true gamer. Um, but, 
you know, one of the arguments that Ferguson made was that, you know, a lot of these uh, meta-analyses and so forth are, are, or these studies are, are um, conducted by biased researchers who want to find, find an effect because it gets them funding. And that to me, I was just like shaking my head vehemently because, you know, the idea that scientists are motivated to find an effect because they can get more grant money from the government. I mean, come on, uh, you know, if you really wanted to make money doing research and and your interest is in video gaming, isn't it possible that you could get more money from industry if you could show that video games don't have an effect and they're perfectly safe for your 14-year-old child, right? I mean, it seems to me like that argument had no basis in reality. Um, and well, also... As, as two people that have worked at science, I just don't encourage any of our listeners to go into science for money. It's, it's not a not good gonna, idea. It's not going to make you a lot of money. And if you have, pro have a problem with motivated researchers and scientists doing research, uh, if you have a problem with motivated researchers um, you know, who have a question that perhaps they are really interested in, then you need to throw out the entire field of science because anything we study is going to have some relevance to the human condition and we'll have some opinion, we'll have some bias one way or another, but that's why in science we have checks and balances. That's why these peer-reviewed journals exist. That's why we don't just take one study. That's why we look at a number of different studies. We look at converging evidence, not just one line of testing um, in order to make these claims. To wrap up, I will put in my perspective. I am a gamer. I play video games probably like four to five nights a week, maybe three to five, depending on what's going on. I like video games. I I don't mind the violence in video games. There's some really gory ones where it does get on my nerves, but I enjoy it. It's a release for me. Uh, but I hate the depictions of women in a lot of video games. It goes against sort of my moral center. And so I struggled listening to both of these interviews side by side because there's aspects that lined up with my own sort of personal uh, viewpoint of the world and ones that didn't. And I'm left feeling more confused about where uh, the science is actually going in this field than I did when we started both interviews. But I think that's an interesting question for our listeners to really look at, is put these interviews side by side and really think critically about what, um, what really resonates with them going forward and where the science should go forward. And I encourage them to email us and leave us lots of comments, uh, because I think this is a field that um, probably deserves a, another uh, couple episodes. Not particularly about violence, but video game research seems to be an interesting place for us to, to cover. I agree. And Oculus Rift is just around the corner, right? So that's going <laughs> to make some pretty I'm, big changes. I'm going to have one in a couple months. Woo! So that's it for another episode. Have a great holiday. I want to thank you for joining us for this installment of Inquiring Minds. And we'd also like to thank our supporters on our Patreon campaign, especially Herring Chang, Nick Cadillac, and Sean Johnson. And of course, our lovely anonymous donor. And we should let our listeners know that we will be off for the next two weeks, so there will be no new episodes on December 25th and January 1st. Consider us completely consumed by the new Star Wars movie that we can't even get off of our chairs to go and record a podcast. 
This episode is sponsored by Zevia. Zevia is the zero-calorie, naturally sweetened soda that's clearly different. It has no sugar and no calories, but is still somehow really delicious. Zevia is available in 15 different flavors like cream soda, black cherry, cola, ginger ale, or even tonic water. Always zero calories, Zevia makes amazing guilt-free cocktails just in time for the holidays. Whiskey and ginger, gin and tonic, and so many more. Plus, Zevia is giving away thousands of free six-packs. To check it out, go to zevia.com slash podcast. That's Z-E-V-I-A dot com slash podcast. And this episode is sponsored by Harry's.com. Harry's is already disrupting the shaving industry, offering a better shaving experience at better value than giants like Schick and Gillette. And Harry's will give first-time customers $5 off if you go to harrys.com and use coupon code inquiringminds. That's H-A-R-R-Y-S.com, coupon code inquiringminds. You can visit our website at inquiringshow.tumblr.com and you can support us on patreon.com slash inquiringminds. You can also find us on Twitter at inquiringshow and Facebook. You can send us comments, feedback, future guest ideas, your favorite holiday cocktail recipes, or anything else you'd like to inquiringminds at climatedesk.org. Have a great new year, and we'll see you in 2016. Inquiring Minds is produced by video game hater Adam Isaac in cooperation with The Climate Desk, a journalistic collaboration in partnership with The Atlantic, Reveal from the Center for Investigative Reporting, Medium, City Lab, The Guardian, Grist, The Huffington Post, Mother Jones, Slate, and Wired. Our music is provided by award-winning producer Rian Chien. Our research assistant is Caitlin Smith. And we're your hosts. I'm Indre Viscontis. You can find me on Twitter at Indre Vis. And I'm Kishore Hari at Science Quiche. See you next year. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America.